Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. Welcome to episode 20 of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. Uh, we are continuing our OB adventures today. Uh, this is part three of the management of high-risk parturients, and today's specific topic is going to be heart disease. So in this episode, we're going to talk about congenital heart disease, like how they usually present and our anesthesia uh, management for, for these patients, valvular heart disease, so going through all the different types like aortic stenosis, uh, mitral regurgitation, all that good stuff. And then from there, we're going to be talking about cardiomyopathy of pregnancy. And lastly, we're going to finish up by talking about CAD and MIs. So uh, if you have the time, I'd appreciate it if you take the pre-survey that's in the, the link in the description. And this kind of helps me determine whether or not you're learning anything from the, these episodes and if you have any feedback uh, for me regarding this podcast. But if you don't have the time, that's totally fine. Let's go ahead and get started. So let's kind of talk about uh, the epidemiology behind heart disease and uh, parturients uh, for the first few minutes. And it usually occurs in about 1 to 6% of pregnant patients. And it happens to be a leading cause of non-obstetric maternal mortality. So if a patient has an NYHA class of 1 or 2, and NYHA is the classification for the New York Heart Association, basically classifies how bad a heart failure is. So if they have class 1 or 2, they have a 0.4% risk for mortality. And if they have a class 3 or 4, they're going to have a 6.8% uh, risk for mortality. And generally speaking, uh, pregnant patients uh, would have uh, cardiac decompensation mainly in times of maximal hemodynamic stress. And this usually is in the third trimester and after delivery. Because uh, at after the baby is delivered, whether it be C-section or vaginal delivery, it's the greatest cardiac output. Because of all that blood that was in the placenta, it returns to the maternal circulation and basically increases the cardiac output and it places greater stress uh, on the heart and the hemodynamic system as, as a whole. And also, of course, uh, after 20 to 24 weeks of gestation, there would be an increase in maternal blood volume, which would also start to increase the maternal cardiac output. So for these patients, the ones that you identify to have significant heart disease, it's very important to take a multidisciplinary approach when trying to plan the care for these patients. So not only us as uh, the anesthesia providers, but also the OB team, of course, uh, as well as uh, cardiologists if needed. So again, to provide like the best outcomes for these patients, taking the multidisciplinary uh, approach is the best way to do it. So the background and epidemiology stuff aside, let's go ahead and actually get to the fun stuff. So we're going to talk about various types of congenital heart disease. And it's interesting because now with the advent of different surgical procedures and management, um, patients with a congenital heart disease have the opportunity to live longer. 
And this means that we're going to have to understand the physiology behind these various congenital heart diseases and in order to manage it. And honestly, um, if they have the um, severe heart, congenital heart problems at, at birth, but if they're, they fix it early on, it's generally not too big of an issue to manage, uh, during the pregnant phase. But, um, again, it, it's still good to know about these different uh, congenital heart uh, diseases and how to manage. So first of all, we're going to talk about is tetralogy of flow. And it's one of the uh, cyanotic congenital lesions. And there's four main components of the tetralogy. So the four components of the tetralogy of flow are the ventricular septal defect, an overriding aorta, the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and a right ventricular hypertrophy. And usually, patients that, that have tetralogy of flow have to have surgery because uh, this is actually a life-threatening condition and that only 25% of these patients survive to adolescence without any correction and only 3% survive to age 40. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. Like most of these patients, if you have the opportunity to work with them in an OB period, it means that uh, they likely had some sort of surgery to correct the tetralogy early on in their life, just based on these statistics alone. So regarding the management for corrected tetralogy of flow, usually when they fix it, they kind of close the VSD, the ventricular septal defect, and widen the right ventricular outflow to relieve any obstructions. So the, the main problem that you'll encounter when caring for these patients that with the corrected uh, te- uh, tetralogy flow is uh, main, or sorry, is small ventricular septal defect and possible outflow obstruction. The, so regarding the anesthesia considerations for this, uh, the main thing that we're, main technique that uh, is recommended is neuraxial as this minimizes the hemodynamic changes uh, due to pain. And the goal is to maintain the SVR and venous return to reduce the right to left shunt. And if for whatever reason the patient's SVR decreases, uh, phenylephrine is going to be your best friend to treat that. Okay, so we won't spend too much time of uh, tetralogy of flow. Eventually, when I do my PEDS rotation next year, I probably will go over the uh, congenital heart diseases in more detail. Um, but for the purposes of this episode, um, that's basically all we're going to talk about. And that's a high yield for OB uh, anesthesia uh, specifically. Okay, next, uh, ventricular and atrial septal defects. Um, because this is not too severe of a heart, uh, congenital heart disease, uh, no real special care uh, is needed, especially if the, the, defect, the defect is small. But... Uh, it's always a good idea to take a good HMP because if they're symptomatic, you want to try to choose using neuroaxial just to uh, minimize an increase in SVR due to pain, uh, which would reduce the left to right shunt, as we kind of talked about previously in the Tetralogy of Fallot. Um, if there's like a larger defect, uh, it's possible that it may be associated with pulmonary hypertension and for these ones, uh, they will require uh, invasive monitoring uh, if this is indeed confirmed to, uh, to have a pulmonary hypertension. 
And we'll kind of talk about that in the next section. Okay, next is going to be uh, pulmonary hypertension and Eisenmenger syndrome. So pulmonary hypertension is uh, defined as a pulmonary arterial pressure that's greater than 25 millimeters of mercury at rest and greater than 30 millimeters of mercury with exercise. Uh, usually, uh, you can utilize an echocardiogram to kind of diagnose this. Uh, however, the definitive diagnosis is actually going to be invasive catheterization. And unfortunately for these patients, um, the, the mortality rate is actually 56%. It's very, very high. And that's why uh, pregnancy is actually uh, contraindicated or highly discouraged for patients with pulmonary hypertension due to the significant risk. And there's like different classes of pulmonary hypertension. So uh, in total, there's like uh, five groups. Uh, so group one is basically idiopathic. So it could be due to like congenital issue, uh, where it's like issues of the, the you know, uh, endothelial dysfunction. Group two is like pulmonary hypertension due to uh, left heart disease. Group three is uh, due to lung diseases or hypoxia. Group four is due to chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So Group four is due to chronic thromboembolic uh, issues. And group five is multifactorial. So things like metabolic stuff, systemic stuff, hematologic stuff that could cause the pulmonary hypertension. And uh, we won't go too much in depth with this in this episode because it's a little bit outside the scope. But I definitely plan on doing this uh, eventually. Okay, so so that's pulmonary hypertension. And we'll kind of get into the anesthesia considerations after we talk about uh, Eisenmenger syndrome. Okay, so Eisenmenger syndrome is basically when there's an uncorrected left-to-right shunt that ultimately causes pulmonary hypertension. So either you have a, a VSD or ASD or a uh, a PDA, a patent ductus arteriosus. Uh, eventually, the uh, end product is pretty much increased pulmonary blood flow. So again, it's from a left-right shunt. So it's going from the left ventricle. It's going over to the right side. That's going to go. Um, that volume is going to go towards the lungs, right? So increased pulmonary blood flow, uh, which leads to pathologic remodeling of the vasculature, which leads to the pulmonary hypertension. And over time, um, this causes the right ventricle to compensate. And it's going to get bigger. It's going to get uh, hypertrophied because it's pushing against a higher resistance in the lungs. So then over time, this be, uh, the shunt becomes right to left. So basically it reverses uh, from the original left to right. And the presenting symptoms is going to be late cyanosis, clubbing, and polycythemia. And generally speaking, uh, the age of onset of these symptoms is going to vary. So again, if got nothing out of that. Basically, Eisenmenger syndrome is uncorrected uh, left-to-right shunt that causes increase in pulmonary blood flow, and that uh, eventually causes a pulmonary hypertension. And that's why we're concerned about it in patients that have this disease and they're going to be pregnant. Because uh, patients with Eisenmenger syndrome don't really tolerate being pregnant very well. Mortality rate for this is actually as high as 30%. And this is most commonly due to uh, embolic diseases. Okay, and the 
Moving on to the medical and OB management for patients with Weissmanger syndrome and uh, pulmonary hypertension is, as we kind of discussed, it's a very deadly disease. It's a very high mortality rate. So multidisciplinary care is going to be utmost importance for this one. So having uh, not only OB anesthesia, but also cardiologists involved uh, and possible pulmonologists involved to kind of figure out a best plan for this patient. Other than that, things like volume management is going to be key. So to make sure that they don't overload their system. So basically, you're going to uh, likely need diuretics, especially in immediate postpartum period, because remember, the cardiac output is highest immediately postpartum. Assessing the and treating uh, the right ventricle is going to be very important. So sometimes uh, using dobutamine might be necessary to improve the brain ventricular function. And the treatment for uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension itself involves uh, different types of things. So it can they can use inhaled nitric oxide, which uh, dilates the pulmonary vasculature. You can use prostacyclines, so epropostanol, treprostanol, or ilopros are uh, good options. Or even you can use sildenafil, uh, which is a phosphodiesterase uh, type uh, 5 inhibitor. And it's basically Viagra. <laughs> so cool. Um, and lastly, um, even though it's technically used for pulmonary hypertension, uh, the endothelin receptor antagonists, things like bosentan and ambrosentan, um, these are actually contraindicated for patients that are pregnant due to its uh, teratogenic effects. Okay, so key things to manage for pulmonary hypertension is to tightly control the volume, improve the right ventricle function, and lastly treat the pulmonary arterial hypertension itself. Okay, the method of delivery is vaginal delivery is going to be preferred mainly because C-sections are associated with larger changes in intravascular volume, there's more bleeding complications, and there's increased risk for thromboembolism. Um, so again, vaginal delivery is going to be preferred method of delivery, but C-section is still an option if there are OB indications for that. Okay, so here's our, our fun part, uh, the anesthesia considerations. And the primary goals of managing patients with pulmonary hypertension uh, and or Isomanger syndrome are things like uh, maintaining adequate SVR to maintain intravascular volume venous return, to avoid aortocaval compression, to prevent pain, hypoxemia, hypercarbia, or acidosis, and lastly, uh, avoid myocardial depression. Because again, regarding uh, maintaining adequate SVR, you want to basically have a normal patient be normal tensive just so you don't worsen the the, the shunt, uh, especially in Isomanger syndrome. You want to have good control of the volume, mainly to avoid overloading the system, but also avoid like overloading the system. Same idea of preventing pain because the pain increases the SVR. It's trying to Avoid any hypoxemia and hypercarbia because it causes like pulmonary uh, vasoconstriction, which uh, would worsen the pulmonary hypertension. And of course, you want to avoid any sort of myocardial depression because, especially for the right right ventricle, is already having issues pushing against uh, the afterload of the the, the lungs. So, uh, if you decrease the myocardial effectiveness, then you can have uh, greater risk for 
decompensation. Okay, so regarding the technique, the, an opioid-based neuroaxial technique is going to be preferred, either epidural or CSE, and if necessary, to add on pulmonary vasodilators as well. And the idea of using uh, like epidurals or CSCs is it allows you to pretty much titrate uh, the the opioids to effect, and this kind of helps you like manage the shunt a little bit better. Uh, ideally, you can do the neuroaxial technique, um, but again, if the best method is going to be trying to make a decision as part as part of the uh, multidisciplinary team. Um, so that's the technique. And regarding intravascular volume assessment, uh, you're likely going to need a lot of different monitors. You're going to need uh, CVP monitoring, so uh, patients likely going to need a central line. They're going to need an A-line to, uh, to have a tight control of the blood pressure. Having a TTE or a TEE uh, will be uh, useful in determining heart function, especially looking at the, the right side of the heart. And uh, the interesting thing is uh, pulmonary artery catheterization actually has not uh, been shown to improve outcomes. So that one's like plus or minus. Okay. Uh, so that's pulmonary hypertension and Eisenmenger syndrome. We're going to move on to what I think is pretty interesting is uh, valvular heart disease. And we're going to tackle these uh, one by one. So first one's going to be uh, aortic stenosis. Then we're going to talk about uh, aortic regurgitation, then mitral stenosis, then mitral regurgitation, as well as prolapse. So first off, uh, aortic stenosis. Um, and for each of these, I'm going to start off with just the management goals. So then you can get the high yield information first and we'll kind of talk about it a little bit later. So uh, management goals for aortic stenosis is sinus rhythm as uh, any arrhythmia decreases preload. Uh, maintaining the uh, heart rate is going to be important as this allows, uh, or maintaining normal heart rate is going to be important to allow time for filling. To uh, avoid decreases in SVR is important because it, because hyper, hypotension, uh, could cause decreased coronary perfusion. And, uh, lastly, maintaining venous return is going to be, uh, important to get, uh, improved circulation, uh, and the, and especially for pregnant patients, you want to avoid aortal caval compression. So basically, keep them normal. Normal heart rate, normal pressure, normal pressure, and uh, keep adequate venous return for aortic stenosis. Okay. Uh, delivery method-wise for patients with aortic stenosis, uh, vaginal delivery is going to be preferred. Uh, C-section for obstetric uh, indications. Um the technique you can use for aortic stenosis is at this point debatable because historically, um, the, the thought was that you should try to avoid neuroaxial, uh, techniques due to decrease in preload and afterload, which would exacerbate the aortic stenosis. Um, but there's has been a few case reports that showed successful implementation of uh, neuroaxial techniques. So. That being said, the choice of whether to do neuroaxial versus general uh, anesthesia is going to be, you're going to need more than just using the aortic valve gradient and a size to determine which technique you're going to use. So things like using your physical exam, their symptomatology, and overall cardiac function, and basically like their METs is going to be important in making uh, the decision. So, for example, if their METs is less than four with the aortic stenosis, they are like 
having issues like trouble breathing, especially with some sort of exertion, they they're passing out or something like that, you know. Um, they're they would likely not tolerate the neuroaxial uh, anesthesia well. So HMP is going to be important for for these cases. And something to consider also is uh, if they get an echo and there's a presence of pulmonary hypertension, that's going to be uh, something to keep in mind as well. Okay. So, and basically the best thing you can do for these patients is uh, in terms of pre-op diagnostics is to get an echo because the, based on what you find, it kind of allows you to have different decision-making points in, along the road and then and allows you to kind of plan your anesthetic. So say uh, you know a patient has aortic stenosis and you get an echo and they have a normal left ventricular and right ventricular function, then they will likely be able to tolerate the fluid shifts. So doing neuroaxial is probably uh, an okay option. Um, but um, if you do an echo and there's a left ventricular dysfunction, there's could be something called low output, low gradient aortic stenosis. So uh, they possibly uh, could and not tolerate uh, neuroaxial anesthesia. Um, if you find that the patient has pulmonary hypertension or right ventricular dysfunction or some sort of uh, severe mitral regurgitation, in addition to the aortic stenosis, these patients generally re- uh, have a greater dependence on preload. So if you end up doing neuroaxial, especially you put in a, a spinal, they could have unfavorable hemodynamic response. So this in these cases, uh, neuroaxial might not be your best option. Okay, and lastly, if you do if you do the echo and you find that there's left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, these patients possibly have severe diastolic dysfunction, as this would impede left ventricular function or left ventricular filling. So, they are especially sensitive to decreased preload and tachycardia. Okay, so. That's basically the the point of kind of going over that with you is to know that there's different variations and severity in the disease for patients of uh, aortic stenosis. So an echo is very important uh, component in the preoperative assessment. And based on what you find, you're going to have to use that information to tailor it uh, to uh, tailor the anesthetic plan to that patient. Okay, and we're going to kind of go over this again for uh, the severity of the aortic stenosis, so mild to moderate, and then severe aortic stenosis. So uh, regarding mild to moderate uh, aortic stenosis, it's okay uh, to do neuroaxial or general anesthesia if there's no issues seen in uh, other issues seen in in the workup. And neuroaxial procedures that allow titration, things like epidurals, is going to be desirable as opposed to doing a spinal, which has a, a potential to, to really decrease uh, preload due to um, uh, preload and vascular resistance due to the sympathectomy. Okay, in uh, patients with severe aortic stenosis, uh, having uh, this kind of becomes a more involved process, uh, invasive arterial blood pressure uh, monitoring is going to be recommended, so getting an A-line. Uh, again, like for pulmonary hypertension, the uh, pulmonary arterial catheterization is, has not been shown to improve outcomes. But in severe aortic stenosis, uh, general anesthesia is going to be the gold standard. 
and then regarding your induction for uh, patients with severe uh, aortic stenosis using things like etominate and fentanyl are going to be the ideal uh, drugs of choice as propofol uh, is has some myocardial depressant effects and things like ketamine as uh, issues with tachycardia as and that would uh, impede the ability to improve preload okay so but even even if general anesthesia is a go standard neoaxial is going to be possible um, but you can be using more an opioid based uh, technique as well as a combination of other analgesic methods so things like pudendal blocks or iv opioids but if you're doing an epidural or, or whatever try to avoid uh, using a test dose with epinephrine as if for whatever reason you end up intravascular that causes tachycardia and diminished uh, venous return that could be detrimental to to these patients and one thing to note is patients with severe aortic stenosis are going to be very very difficult to do cpr if they uh, decompensate in the or okay next is uh, aortic regurgitation uh, common causes of aortic regurgitation is going to be degenerated uh, by cause of the aortic valve as well as a rheumatic aortic regurgitation. Uh, fun fact, uh, I myself have a bicuspid valve, so I might uh, have run into th- these uh, issues eventually. Um, but fortunately, I can't get pregnant. So anyways, um, so management goes for aortic regurgitation. Um, basically, you're going to keep them either uh, the heart rate normal or slightly elevated. You're going to try to avoid any increase in SVR, try to avoid aortic cable compression, and lastly, avoiding myocardial depression. Uh, the choice of anesthetic is kind of dependent uh, on how bad the aortic regurgitation is. So getting uh, antepartum echo is going to be useful. So if uh, the, it seems like everything is compensated, uh, the patient will be likely able to tolerate any hemodynamic changes, whether from neoaxial or uh, general anesthesia. But if there's any issues of left ventricular dysfunction, they will likely need close monitoring of volume pulmonary arterial pressure. So using A-line, central line, and possibly consider uh, placing a pulmonary catheter. So again, uh, if the patient has aortic regurgitation with preserved EF, then uh, neuroaxial or general is going to be acceptable. Um, and basically, if you decide to do neuroaxial, doing it uh, early in labor, so placing an epidural, uh, will be ideal, mainly to reduce pain associated with, uh, mainly to reduce uh, the SVR as pain is a, would increase the SVR. Okay, next is mitral stenosis. So the choice of delivery is going to be up to obstetric indication. Uh, if they end up using uh, vaginal delivery, it's usually assisted as the uh, valsalva causes decrease in central venous pressure. Um, the management goals for metrosinosis are things it's going to be like keeping sinus rhythm. So definitely aggressively treat any uh, AFib or any other arrhythmias. You're going to actually decrease the heart rate to low to normal for these patients. You're going to maintain SVR. And you're going to maintain venous return. So again, like for all of these, avoid aortal cable compression. And uh, you also want to try to prevent any pain, hypoxemia, hypercarbia, 
or acidosis as these things increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. So the main thing that's different uh, for this is basically you're going to have a, a relatively decreased heart rate that's low to normal, mainly to allow for uh, improved filling, the, uh, the left ventricle. Other than that, again, like most, most of these, you can't go wrong by just trying to keep things as normal as possible. Okay. Uh, regarding monitoring for mitral stenosis, um, invasive monitoring is uh, usually pretty helpful, especially in cases of severe uh, mitral stenosis. So having uh, a pulmonary artery catheter could help with fluid management and the other uh, monitoring as well, things like uh, A-line to help with uh, blood pressure management. Regarding anesthetic choice, uh, neuroaxial is actually going to be a reasonable choice for uh, patients with mitral stenosis uh, as adequate uh, pain relief or pain control during stage one is going to be very important. So using things like intrathecal opioids with local anesthetic is going to be great or at least using an epidural uh, with uh, opioids. Uh, if there's any sort of high, hypotension, uh, treat that with direct vasoconstrictor like phenylephrine. And uh, as we uh, mentioned just now, uh, using a titratal method is going to be preferred as well. Um, so using an epidural or using a CSC. But um, if the obstetric indications uh, causes patients to go back for an emergent C-section or they're bleeding a lot, then having general anesthesia uh, is a viable option. Uh, so if doing general anesthesia, the main thing you can try to do is prevent tachycardia. It can do this with either a beta blocker or an opioid. And uh, you want to be careful using uh, prostaglandins uh, F2-alpha due to the increase in uh, peripheral vascular resistance. Okay, uh, next is uh, mitral regurgitation. And this one is not too bad. It's generally uh, tolerated well, uh, but patients with chronic regurgitation could cause left ventricular dysfunction. So definitely take uh, a look out for that. Uh, and management goals for this is essentially fast, full, and forward. So uh, sinus rhythm, uh, avoid any like uh, dysrhythmias, have a mild increase in uh, heart rate to keep the blood uh, moving forward, avoid any increases and uh, or excessive increases in SVR to allow the blood to keep going forward. And again, avoid any severe increase in uh, venous return as uh, you want to kind of prevent any increases in central venous volume. And uh, lastly, uh, the last valvular issue we're going to talk about is the uh, mitral prolapse. And this one is probably the best one to have if you're going to choose one. Uh, as this does have an excellent clinical course. Uh, delivery is, uh, anything is fine. So vaginal or C-section is okay. Uh, they can tolerate neuroaxial or general anesthesia pretty well. But if there's any severe cases of mitral prolapse, you kind of just treat it as the mitral regurgitation as we kind of discussed earlier. And the thing for mitral prolapse is, uh, prophylactic antibiotics is not necessarily needed, uh, for the, uh, the heart itself, like for endocarditis or anything, anything like that. Okay. So those are the valvular issues. Uh, hopefully that wasn't too confusing. But if you get anything out of it, basically when you're treating heart uh, valvular issues, trying to you can't go wrong with keeping them as normal as possible with certain things like like aortic stenosis. If it's super severe, then uh, neuroaxial is going to be contraindicated or not contraindicated, but with general anesthesia is going to be the gold standard. Aortic regurgitation, you're going to have a heart rate normal to slightly elevated. Mitral stenosis, you want to decrease the heart rate to allow for filling. 
and for mitral regurgitation, we're going to keep the flow going forward. So there's, again, the, the main thing for valvular uh, issues, just keep it normal, except for, you know, some slight tweaks for, for each, uh, valvular issue. Um, eventually I'll do like a dedicated episode for heart, uh, diseases and valvular issues. So, uh, look forward to that in the future. Uh, that being said, let's uh, move on to the last two things we're going to talk about. Uh, cardiomyopathy of pregnancy. Uh, so the definition of this is basically left ventricular failure late in pregnancy or six or up to six weeks postpartum. Uh, regarding epidemiology is about one in 3,000 births. Uh, and maternal mortality is actually pretty high at 25 to 30%. Uh, risk factors for cardiomyopathy of pregnancy includes things like advanced maternal age, multiparity, multiple gestation, obesity, hypertension, as well as preeclampsia. Uh, prognosis, if the patient's uh, EF is less than 25%, uh, diagnosis, there's a poor long-term prognosis and mortality is as high as 50% if the cardiomyopathy persists. So regarding medical management for these, you can have uh, preload optimization, afterload reduction, as, po- as well as possible thromboprophylaxis especially if the EF is very poor. And uh, lastly, regarding intrapartum uh, management, basically try to avoid any uh, and minimize cardiac stress and invasive monitoring is going to be indicated for these patients. Okay, and the last thing we're going to talk about is CAD, uh, coronary artery disease, and MIs, uh, myocardial infarctions. Uh, Regarding epidemiology, it occurs in one in 10,000 to about 30,000 women uh, this does have a high maternal mortality rate at 37%. It also has a high infant mortality rate at 9%. And the most common thing, uh, artery or coronary artery that's affected is going to be the left anterior descending uh, artery. Risk factors like for normal MI and CED stuff, smoking, obesity, advanced maternal age, diabetes, hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia. So diagnosis as with normal normal MI stuff, EKGs, uh, it's going to be great. Having an echo uh, could uh, identify any abnormal wall motion abnormalities. Troponins become less helpful because they could be elevated in preeclampsia and gestational hypertension. So uh, definitely get an EKG to back up the troponin. Regarding delivery considerations, so try to avoid delivering the patient or delivering the, the baby within two weeks of having the MI, as this has a high risk for reinfarction and death. So if the patient has an MI, try to delay delivery if possible. And of note, uh, vaginal delivery has a lower mortality rate as opposed to doing C-section. And lastly, regarding anesthetic considerations, monitoring, you're going to have, try to have the same intrapartum monitoring as if you have uh, doing it inside the OR. So having like heart rate, basically all the ASA standard monitoring uh, for these patients. Uh, if it's severe, uh, consider invasive monitoring. And regarding urotonics, you want to try to avoid anti-ergot alkaloids, so things like methogen, as this increases the risk for coronary vasospasm. But uh, if the patient has a cardiac arrest in late pregnancy, uh, placing them left lateral uh, to avoid aerocheal compression and do the ACLS, but if CPR is not successful, get the baby out within five minutes. Okay, so that concludes the series on management of high-risk parturients and 
uh, finishing it up with these this episode on heart disease. Um, sorry, this one was also pretty uh, long in duration. Uh, so, but hopefully you guys gain something out of it. And to reward you, I will give you a fun fact. And this fun fact is also from factsite.com. And this one is during your lifetime, you will produce enough saliva to fill 50 bathtubs. That is a lot of saliva, man. Anyways, um, if you have the time, I know you spent a lot of time listening to this episode already, but if you do have the time, I'd appreciate it if you take the post survey, uh, in the link, in the, uh, the link is in the description as this helps me uh, gauge whether or not you're learning anything. And uh, if you have any comments for improving this podcast, I would love to hear it. Um, With all that being said, uh, this is Scott, the anesthesia resident, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.